find Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to look at a lot more than just Galatians 6 this morning, but we're just going to read from verse 6 to verse 10 together. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 to 10. The Word of God says, Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of God. Normally, what we do here is, as many of you know, is work our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. We went through Genesis not too long ago. We'd finished 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John recently, and we're going to start Exodus here in a few weeks. But we've been kind of taking a little bit of a detour to look and be a part of a series called Don't Lose Heart. And we've looked at various places in the New Testament in particular where we're told not to lose heart. Last week, we looked at Jesus' parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, where he told the parable to the effect that we ought to pray and not lose heart. And today, we turn to the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, we're not to grow weary in doing good. Or the literal translation literally says, don't lose heart in doing good. Do you ever grow tired of doing what you're supposed to do? Do you ever grow tired of doing good and doing as you ought? Be careful how you answer, (laughs) because the passage here implies that this should be a normal temptation that we all wrestle with and war with. If you're never weary in doing good, it may be that you're not doing as much good as you think. (laughs) But if you're always weary in doing good, it may mean that that, that there's something wrong in the engine of your soul. (laughs) You need some new fuel, some new oil, right, in the, the, the life of faith. We're all tempted to give up on doing good, to lose, to, to lose heart and obedience to God's word and to throw up our hands on especially this loving our neighbor thing. It's really hard, isn't it? <laughs> but as we go back and we look at Paul's whole discussion here in chapter 6, we realize it actually starts back in chapter 5. And he wants to give us fuel for this doing good in the world thing. He wants to give us fuel in living the life of faith. And he wanted, and Paul reminded the Galatian Christians of the gospel. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. That they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That our relationship with God is not ultimately found in the fact that we got up and came to church this morning. (laughs) but in the fact that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ 
and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place and he rose again on the third day. And that this gospel has set us free to do good works. Good works don't merit for us eternal life, but because Jesus has given us eternal life, we're set free to do good works. Good works take on their true meaning and purpose when they're done, not in order to justify us before God, but in order to display love toward our fellow man. Paul puts it this way. Drop back into Galatians chapter 5 and look at verse 1. He says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, don't go back to works as a source of salvation. That's what the Galatians were tempted to do. They were tempted to think that all the good deeds they did were somehow earning them favor with God. And he says, don't go back to that. That's a yoke of bitter slavery, but rather do good works because you've been set free in order to stand firm and to serve. Particularly the Galatian Christians wanted to go back to a rigid obedience to the Old Testament law. They were particularly very obsessed with circumcision. And and this had created all kinds of battles and divisions among God's people. But rather than this sort of slavish obedience to the Old Testament ceremonial law, we're called to give ourselves toward obedience to Christ. We have a new and better covenant with a higher standard, Christ himself. And Paul actually gets to this point in Galatians 5, verse 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. Use your freedom to love and serve and do good. Don't attack and devour one another. Don't be consumed by one another. Use your freedom to not grow weary in doing good. But what, what about this is supposed to lead us toward doing good? What is the hope, the fuel, the encouragement that we not grow weary in doing good? Paul gives us three sources of fuel for you. If you're, if you're weary today, Paul wants to jumpstart you with these three realities. First, he starts by telling us that we do not grow weary in doing good because of new desires given by the Spirit. New desires given by God's Spirit. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What we need is new desires given by the Spirit of God. And Paul sets up this sort of dichotomy between the flesh and the Spirit. And the flesh is how we live in and of ourselves versus how we live through and in the Holy Spirit. And Paul gives, goes on to give us a list of, of sort of these desires of the flesh Versus the desires of the Spirit. And the contrast becomes even clearer. Look here, verse 19. 
For the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. We get it, Paul writes. The works of the flesh are bad, right? I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then look at the contrast. But the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We need new desires produced by the Spirit. And the desires of the flesh, our natural inclination, are always opposed to and at war with the Spirit of God and His work in our lives. The desires of the flesh will always keep you from doing as you ought, and they will cause you to grow weary in doing good rather than good. Look at this. The flesh will lead you to selfish causes. Look, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. It'll lead you to worldly ambitions, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And in the end, they will breed eternal death. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul repeats this principle, chapter 6, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's telling us you can't do as you ought by your own power. (laughs) You can't just pull up your bootstraps and knuckle down and just, I'm going to try harder by my own willpower. Friends, that doesn't work. (laughs) We've all tried it. We've all thought, well, I'm going to just go, I'm going to buy the Oreos and I'm going to put them in the pantry, but I'm not going to eat the Oreos. Or I'm only going to eat three as you've got the whole thing open with all of them in front of you, right? Nobody on their own natural inclination is going to choose the, the apples in the fridge over the Oreos in the pantry, right? We need new desires. We need something new to drive us. And the Spirit of God creates these desires in us. The desire and the ability to do good. Verse 22, again, he tells us that the fruit of the Spirit in our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. He tells us that if you want to have love, a radical self-concern and self-orientation toward others, you need the Spirit of God to do it in you. And Paul writes that this actually is what matters most. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He says, if you want to be about the most important thing, be all about love. Don't forget about love. And God puts the weightiest matters of the law on our heart through the spirits. And while there's more that could be said here, he says that in order to do good, we need new desires by the spirit. But hear me. 
So often we talk about that as if, well, the Spirit puts those desires in us and it's a one-and-done sort of thing. Like, well, I mean, I, I, I got saved, I prayed the prayer, I became a Christian, and one-and-done, the desires should be there, right? Not, not quite. It doesn't quite work that way. The Christian life is never just, just putting a hot pocket in the microwave and hitting go and it's all ready to go, right? But it's an ongoing work. We need the continuous transformation by the power of the Spirit. Look at the end of verse five, end of chapter five, verse twenty-five and twenty-six. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. He says, if you live by the Spirit, if the if this Spirit is given and produced this new life in you, then he says you got to keep in step with it. You've got to allow him to continue to transform you. You've got to, when you get weary, say, Spirit, help me. And to come to his word that the Spirit has written and inspired for us and say, Spirit, encourage me. And when we're thirsty and dried out, we need the living water to nourish our souls. In fact, Jesus himself referred to the Spirit of God as living water. Look, this is John chapter 7. Look at this. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. See it? John says that the people in Jesus' day, even the disciples and those who lived before, before Jesus was glorified, there was something missing. But that we have what was missing in their life. We live on the other side of John chapter 7, don't we? Jesus has ascended. He's been glorified. He's sent down the Spirit from heaven as rivers of living water to ever flow in us and produce new life and new desires and new fruit within us. He says, don't grow weary in doing good, but instead by the power of the Spirit, allow the Spirit to produce new desires in you. Some of us are, have grown weary in doing good because we think the Christian life is just, well, I checked that off the list. I prayed the prayer. I did the thing. I talked to the guy, and I'm good. <laughs> but friends, that is not the Christian life. <laughs> he says, no, it is rather to have the Spirit continue to work on you. It's to say, yes, I am a work in progress, and I am positionally in right relationship with God, even as he is working on my practice and working on my life in the meantime. He is, he is transforming you and conforming us into the image of Christ. And he does this by new desires given by God's Spirit. But Paul's not done. Paul's got more to say, doesn't he? Consider here that we don't grow weary in doing good, second, because of new power given through Christ's cross. You have new power over your sin given to you through the cross of Jesus. Look at Paul's words right in the middle of Galatians chapter 5 at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions 
and desires. He says, you haven't simply been given new desires, friends. You have been given power over your old desires. He has crucified them, and he calls you to continuously, daily crucify them. You fight a winning battle against a defeated enemy. You fight a winning battle against a defeated enemy. Paul put it this way earlier in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Look at this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer you who live. Christ lives in you. And friends, that, if that means if nothing's changed in your life since becoming a Christian, maybe it's because Christ doesn't live in you. Maybe you've not been crucified with him. Maybe you've not understood what this is all about. He echoes this again at the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He says, we've died and we've been given new life. We've been given new power over our sin. We live by faith in the Son of God who's loved us and has gave himself for us. We've been crucified to the world. And he says, we are new creation. And see, we often get confused because the Bible speaks about salvation in three tenses. There are three tenses of salvation in your life that you're to speak of. First, there's a past tense. That the cross has canceled the penalty of sin. If you are in Jesus today, if you have placed your faith in him, you no longer have condemnation over you. You no longer have any condemnation. You're forgiven full and free. And there is nothing you can do to contribute to that justification, to that right relationship. You don't and can't do anything to contribute to it. Coming here today to church, let me just say this, coming here today to church didn't somehow give you points with God. Okay? Take a breath out, right? It's great. You're not trying to just earn enough points to somehow be better than the guy in the seat down from you. That's not how this works. But you get your sin forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, in the perfect, finished work of Christ alone. Jesus has done it all. He lived without sin. He died on the cross in your place instead of you taking your punishment upon himself. And he rose on the third day from the dead. And that is what can give you eternal life simply by saying, I'm in on that. I'm trusting in that. My only hope is built on Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone, not on our own work. Salvation is a past tense thing. The cross has canceled the penalty of sin. But the Bible also speaks about salvation in the present Tense. The cross empties sin of its power. It can say both that we are saved and that we are being saved. And by that it means that we are living what has already been purchased for us. That sin no longer has dominion over us. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. We are saved and we're being saved. Christ lives in us and through us. 
And we are to crucify the remaining sin within us, even as Christ has crucified us with him. This is an ongoing, lifelong experience as a Christian. And this is why you will find Christians that blow it big time. You ever hear folks say, well, all Christians are hypocrites. Well, in one sense, you're right. (laughs) All of us are sinners, All of us are going to blow it. All of us are a work in progress, and anybody who tells you otherwise just simply doesn't get it. But how we think about ourselves and about our salvation will really help us live as Christ lives in us. Let me bring this home for you and give you some perspective. I hear this all the time from uh, well-meaning believers who say things like, I'm nothing but a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. And I think I know what they mean. But let me tell you something. If you're in Jesus, that's not who you are anymore. You're no longer a dirty, filthy sinner. That's no longer your identity nor the crowd over your life. You'll hear somebody say, well, once an addict, always an addict. And I think I know what they mean to say by that is you will probably, probably should always be careful of that temptation in your life. But to say that that's always your identity, what you've done in the past, misses the point of the cross. You are no longer just a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. You're a born-again, spirit-filled, crucified, and resurrected saint and a child of the Most High God. That's right, yes. If you notice, Paul never starts a letter with, Hey, sinners. (laughs) It's never there. He says... Hey, saints, right? There's a new identity. Galatians 5.24 says you belong to Christ. We read we've been crucified with him. Christ lives in us. He's given us freedom from sin's penalty. Justification is full and free, and we're free from sin's power, sanctified by the Spirit. You can, through the means of grace, conquer your sin And the moment you begin to realize that your battle is with a defeated enemy, friends, the whole battle changes. And salvation finally can be spoken of in the future tense. One day we will be freed from the very presence of sin. And even more than that, we're going to be freed from any weird tech issues my mic might be doing today. Just... It's, it's fantastic, right? I know it's probably doing something crazy today. So I know that. And the great thing is, is one day Jesus is going to come and that's not going to be a problem anymore. Isn't that great? We're going to be glorified and free from sin forever. And friends, the cross of Christ is the hope for all three tenses. Friend, Jesus has given us new power over the sin in our life. Friends, therefore, that's why we don't grow weary in doing good. We have the Spirit inside us giving us new desires. Friends, we have Jesus who has died in our place and given us a new identity and enabled us to not grow weary in doing good. But finally, we don't grow weary in doing good because of new love displayed through God's people. We don't grow weary in doing good through new love displayed through God's people. We just now got to Galatians chapter 6. Because these new desires and new power display themselves in new love among God's church. We are to encourage one another in doing good. This is why not growing weary in doing good is a community project. If you're by yourself and isolated, you're going to give up. 
You're going to grow weary. You're going to throw in the towel. Not losing heart is a team effort, a faith family affair. We need one another to do this because we need other spirit-empowered, Christ-crucified, living inside them saints to encourage us to live the same life in fullness. And in the midst of this, he actually is giving us the sort of good we're not to grow weary in, a sort of new love we display for one another. And it highlights two particular ways that love is displayed, two acts of good we're not to grow weary in. And he starts by telling us that we're not to grow weary, we're to confront one another in sin. We're to confront one another in sin. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters implied there, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The Bible says we need to have concern for one another. We need to be concerned and be willing to speak to one another, especially if we're wandering off into something that might destroy us. Being spirit-filled people, that's what Paul means by spiritual here. I mean, sometimes we need to love people enough to have really hard conversations with them, to speak to them. It means having the sort of community where we can be accountable to one another. And he says we're to confront those caught in sin And we're to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, to bring them back and to do it in gentleness. The Greek word there for restore is used elsewhere to talk about mending a broken net, to bring things back into right alignment. One of the signs that the spirit is at work in you is that one, you're willing to engage in hard conversations. And two, that you're willing to receive hard conversations. And typically, there's people that are one or the other. There are some people that love to walk right into hard conversation. This is not the time to look around, by the way. I see people looking, looking. But, and then there's people that are really good at receiving really bad news. But we need to be people who can do both, confront and receive. But we do need to be reminded that there's a right and a wrong way to have conversations about the sins of others, right? Right? First, notice that the goal right there in Galatians 6.1 is personal restoration. If you're going to them in order to make them feel bad, in order to feel better about yourself, that's not the point. We go in order that they might experience the fullness of life in the Spirit. We know that walking in the flesh will destroy them, and we desire for them to be restored to walking in the Spirit. And and we want them to continue doing good, not to give up out of weariness. Second, notice that the issue isn't simply nitpicking momentary sin. We all got it. The pastor's got it. My wife can tell you. She lives with a sinner. We all live with sinners. We're all messed up. We all blow it. But the concern here is someone caught in sin. Someone who's really had sin overtaken them. It's ruling their life. It's controlling them. And he says, in love, we're to go and set free those taken captive. And finally, he tells us how we're to do it. With gentleness, but also with soberness. Keeping watch over ourselves so that we might not fall. Come with gentleness, knowing that kindness leads to repentance. But also in soberness, knowing that walking in the flesh will kill them. 
Sin is poison, and we must be willing to warn those drinking deeply of its deadly drink. And in fact, Jesus gives us guidance of how to have these tough conversations. If you're curious, you can flip over from Galatians and find Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus tells us how to have some of these tough conversations in our life. Because you either are going to have one soon, need to have one now, or just recently should have had one in your life. It's, it's going to happen. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Look what he says here. If your brother sins against you, and this could also mean those that are sinning in such a way that, that it is public, they're caught in it, this is a big deal, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Notice, first it says, you go to them, you and them alone. You know what it doesn't say? Call up your pastor and tell him first. It doesn't say, go and gossip to other people in the church about it. He says, if you and another have sinned between you or you see them persisting in sin, it says you go to them and seek to restore them. And if they listen to you and they leave that behind, you've gained or won your brother. But then you may go, what, what if they don't listen? What if they continue down the road of sin? Jesus continues, verse 16. But if he does not listen... Take one or two along, and others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, bring a small group along. And he does this for a couple reasons. One, it's possible you could be wrong in how you're reading a situation. That's always something you've got to be uh, willing to admit. But it's also possible that, 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 that the situation really is as bad as you think, and the presence of others will highlight the seriousness. This step allows for accountability both for you and accountability for them. The goal is restoration, so we keep the circle small, two, three, and if they listen in turn, we see restoration. But what if they still don't listen? Jesus concludes, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and as a tax collector. And then he keeps going. Therefore I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is telling us that there are times where sin is public enough and persistent enough that it needs to be addressed very publicly. Think about the fact when you see big leaders out in the political world fall. There are times where, the, we, where people have to make a public statement to use what Jesus calls the keys of the kingdom to warn professing believers about their life, to bind and loose their confession of faith. It means to, to sort of affirm or not to affirm that, hey, you're not walking in step with your confession. And the text says where two or three are gathered together, often people talk about that as, as a definition of church, but he's there talking about the fact that two or three gathered together in order to, to judge someone's profession of faith. And Jesus promises that he'll be with them through it all to say to them, you aren't living for Jesus, and we have no reason to affirm how you're living. So we're saying in love and concern and gentleness that you're walking in the flesh and you will reap destruction, just as Galatians 6, 8 says. And you may hear this and go, this is hard. 
Yes, it is. Spirit-filled community requires us to often have hard conversations and have genuine concern over sin, to confront one another over our sins in a spirit of gentleness, to sometimes be willing to be told that we're wrong, and to be able to repent when necessary. This is something social media has made us really bad about. We don't like having to be told, to have to admit to other people, I was wrong. But the Spirit in our life should enable us to do that. And if you want an example of where a sin is brought toward a whole church and how some of that should look, go read when you get home 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which deals with an interesting situation regarding a man and a relationship with his mother-in-law. You can go read about that in your free time later today. But we display new loves given by the Spirit through the cross in community, through confronting one another in our sin, through having concern for someone other than ourselves. But let me give you the good news. The spirit-filled life isn't all about difficult conversations. Sometimes it involves difficult circumstances and walking with one another through difficult circumstances. We display new love as God's people together when we second comfort one another in suffering. We comfort one another in suffering. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Comfort one another in trial. Literally carry those who need to be carried. Friends, when we grow weary, sometimes it's due to sin in our life that's more important than following Jesus. And sometimes it's just due to the heaviness of life. We need people to come along and carry us and encourage us to walk alongside us. And all of us are going to have a time in life when we will need to be carried. Don't begin to think that, well, that, that those people need our help, but I will never need the help of another person. In fact, Paul makes clear that none of us are outside the possibility of needing correction or comfort. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Paul says in verse 2, We should bear one another's burdens. But then in verse 5 says, we should bear our own load. You're like, what are you talking about, Paul? What what are you doing here? First, he starts by telling us that none of us should think we're something. In other words, none of us should ever think that we won't need the help of our church family. We should never think that we're beyond the need of having other people in our life. That we got it. But rather, he calls each of us to personal responsibility. And he's telling us that each of us, as we're doing the work we're supposed to do, that when we're doing it the way we're supposed to do it, we can carry each other along. Imagine it. The Bible gives the picture of a body. And you know what? When your left arm's hurt, you can start doing a lot of stuff with your right arm, right? You're able to wait until while this heals, you can carry them along. Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. He's telling us that, hey, as we teach one another and as we're taught together, this is more than just about that. This is about working together. 
that each of us, when we're doing as we ought, we can share with others in need and carry one another along. Certainly, this has material blessings in mind partially, so that when we give, we can support others in need through our food basket ministry or through other things like that, right? When we have a meal train set up for a family, this is a way you obey verse 6. But I think this has a broader application. Notice he says, we share all things. We share encouragement, rebuke, words of hope, words of warning, sharing not just our material blessings, but our spiritual blessings, moral truth as well. And we come, we confront, and we comfort. We share all things with the one who teaches and the one who is taught. We do good to one another. Look at verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who have the household of faith. He says, love your neighbors, and that means considering your closest neighbor. That might mean the person down the street from you, though I know some of us don't have people very close down the street from us, right? But it might mean the people in the chair down from you. It means we share our gifts, our talents, our treasures to do good to others. You realize when people come and serve here in Kids Crossing and serve your kids, it's because they're, not, they're, they're doing good and they're serving those, especially of the household of faith. Those on the tech team and the worship team, they're here because they want to serve others. And sometimes what they simply need is an encouragement to not grow weary, to be comforted. And to be helped along. So as we have opportunity, let us do good, especially to those who are the household of faith. And let me finish by saying this. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not grow weary in doing the hard things that are the right things. And by prioritizing God's way over the world's way. And he tells us this. Look at verse 9 again. This is so important. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 9 is a command with a promise. And notice, he doesn't give a timeline of exactly when you're going to reap. In due season, when it's ready. And anybody who's planted a garden or, or planted crops knows you care for the soil, you water the plants, you give it some love and attention, and in due time it will grow. But it may not grow as fast as you want it to. It frankly often doesn't because you can't rush reaping because if you do, you will never sow. Let me tell you something. You can't rush community here because it's hard work of getting to know one another, pursue one another, and allow yourself to be open and expect others to be open. Church life takes work. And if you keep searching till you find the perfect one, you're never going to be looking. Because let me tell you something, you're joining it and you're not a perfect person. I'll just be clear with you. And nobody that you're going to find in this town is a perfect person. You can't rush community. You can't rush your own healing. You need other people to bear your burdens, and sometimes that means a long time. A due season may be a long time, but if you don't give up, you will reap, so don't give up. And you can't rush church growth or spiritual maturity. It takes work, 
It takes getting your hands dirty. It takes sometimes getting nicked by thorns, bitten by bugs, and spending lots of time trying to, get, trying to grow wheat, only to find that really it was a tear all along. Ministry takes lots of time. The Christian life takes lots of time. So many of us want to just be killing it in the first second, and that isn't how it works. Doing good, obeying God's word, and living a well-done life takes lots of reaping in order to sow. But we don't reap without a promise. One more thing I want you to look at, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He says we will reap eternal life if we do not give up. Eternal life for ourselves, sure, but also eternal life for the people we serve, for our children, for our families, for our neighbors, for our communities. But it's going to require that we not lose heart in doing good, but trust that what we plant and what we water, God will give the growth. What are you reaping in your life? Galatians chapter 6 is a reminder that what you reap, you will sow. And that if you're sowing in the flesh, what breeds corruption? Or are you sowing in the spirit with the promise of eternal life? Jesus has given us everything we need in order to sow in good soil that will reap eternal life. He himself has died for our sins, taken upon himself the death that we deserve and the destruction that we reaped. And he rose again on the third day to give us everlasting life so that the spirit might indwell us. We'd be given new power and new love. And not simply that our sins would be forgiven, but that our legacy of reaping would be transformed. And so I'd ask you, what are you reaping in your life? In these next moments, we'll have a moment for you to respond. Whether you need to write where you are, make commitments as we worship and pray to God. Whether you need to make commitments to be sowing in a different field toward different things in your life. Maybe you need to come forward and pray with me or pray here at the steps. However you need to respond. Here in these moments will be time to do business with God. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have told us that what we reap, we will sow. But you've also given us the possibility of grace, of a turnaround, of transformation, Lord, you've given us the ability to sow, yes, but also to reap eternal life by placing our faith in your Son, in his death, burial, and resurrection. He, Jesus, perfectly reaped and sowed everlasting life for us. Lord, in these next few moments, I pray that those who've never trusted in you would right now let go of trying to save themselves through works or through their own efforts and that they would simply give up on trying to live by their own power, their own way, their own agenda, and they would give themselves fully in faith to you. And I pray for those that have done that, that, Lord, you would right now have them commit to sow that 
which will breed true results for your glory and your renown. Lord, whatever business we need to do, we ask that you'd be at the center of it. And we ask that you'd be honored and glorified. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>
the goodness of God. Amen. Isn't it good that haven't we seen the goodness of God in our life with all that we've reaped? That somehow He sows His perfect will and plan. Let me just say to you, if you're visiting with us and something resonated with you today or you need to get connected, there's a Get Connected card at the back table. I encourage you to fill it out and leave it in the basket. We'd love to follow up with you. Maybe you need some help, some comfort. Maybe you need to get in a group for accountability. Maybe you just want to learn more about the church. Whatever it is, fill it out, drop it in. Someone will follow up with you. And let me just encourage you and thank you for your giving the way that it's serving not only folks in Trigg County, but continuing to allow us to worship together and also working across the world in Peru and Haiti and many other places. So thank you. There's baskets back at the back or there's obviously online giving that I plug every week and that you're welcome to to give those ways as well uh, toward seeing the gospel continue to do incredible work in our world. And we close our service with a benediction a blessing from God's word over us as we head out into the world. And this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.